This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. I'm your host, Caleb Colquitt. Thank you so much for being with us this evening. As always, it is a pleasure to be with you whenever we are given the opportunity. And there is a lot to get to. As usual on a Monday, there was an awful lot of news over the weekend that we're going to have to try to get through as much of it as we can in a very short amount of time. So I'm going to do my best here. As always, we're going to start with the Alabama coronavirus update. So we'll go ahead and bring up the latest numbers from the Alabama Department of Public Health. You can see there that we currently have surpassed 10,000 confirmed cases of the novel Wuhan coronavirus here in the Yellowhammer State, so that's something that's pretty significant. I know that it seems significant more so to us than it probably actually is just because it's a big round number. I mean, really what's far more important as to how we deal with this is not the maximum number that we hit, but rather... How often is it happening? What is the rate that we're having? And and we'll get into all of that. But if nothing else, it is it is significant to note that we are now over 10,000 cases. By the way, 1,000 of those cases have happened since Thursday. So you can see how that's a, been a, a significant spike, 1,111. So quadruple ones there. And of course, we have 401 deaths, another big milestone that we've surpassed 400, I mean, not not a good milestone, but you know what I'm saying. 400 deaths with that, and then 1,256 hospitalizations regarding this virus. So let's go ahead and dig into those numbers a little bit. Let's look at the new cases in Alabama. And as I've always said, the new cases are far more indicative of, of the direction that we're going than just looking at the raw number just to see how many that we've had. So you may notice there's a really, really big spike on Friday, which of course we didn't cover because on Fridays we do the geek in, we do do, uh, entertainment news. We don't really cover this or, or do an update. And so the past four days have been really significant. Friday being the, by far the biggest day, single day of new cases that we've ever had, but then it drops off pretty significantly. And unlike new coronavirus deaths, Cases have not been something that traditionally, since we've been tracking them, go down all that much over the weekend. And so you you can't really just chalk this up to the weekend that we had a really big day on Friday. That's the new normal. And we had a bit of a lull because of the weekend and it'll jump right back up. Now, that could happen tomorrow. I'm not saying that it is outside the realm of possibility that we'll have a spike similar to what we had on Friday. But it doesn't seem likely. If the same thing had happened with deaths, for example, because... Again, I have no idea why this is the case, but for whatever reason, deaths just don't seem nearly as prevalent on the weekend. If that were something that had only happened uh, with deaths and, and we were looking at a similar statistic, well, I might say that's just the weekend. It'll probably jump right back up to around the levels that we had before the big lull on the weekend, but that's not been the case with confirmed cases. And so we had a really big spike on Friday followed by below average gains the following days. And and I'm not saying that that ought to one out ought to cancel out the other. I'm not saying you should look at that and go, oh, we're in a downward trend. And so we've basically got this thing. Well, no, that's not the right interpretation of that data, especially considering we had our biggest single day gain just four days ago. But it's also wrong to look at that and go, 
oh my gosh, this is going to be something that's going to continue. We, we only have 10,000 cases and 1,000 of those have been in the past four days. Significant, not saying disregard it, but I'm also saying that it would be unwarranted to believe that that is going to be a trend that will continue based on the data we have available to us at this time. Now, as I've said for a couple of weeks now, keep in mind, well, actually, I've been saying this for a lot longer, but I've been really harping on it the past couple of weeks, that when people do start to move around, when people start going out to restaurants more, when people start uh, going to different family events, these numbers are going to pick up. We knew that going into it. We knew that before the shutdown started, that when we opened things back up, once the curve had been flattened and we were, we knew that our hospital system and our healthcare workers were safe and there was very little chance that they were going to be overwhelmed, that when we opened it back up, there would continue to be an increase, just not one that was going to sink us or swamp us. And so we've understood the whole time that this is going to happen and so with that, with the fact that we had a really big spike on Friday, that really shouldn't be anything that shocks anyone. And it's not an exponential spike. It's not, it's nowhere near the numbers that you were seeing, for example, in China, in Italy, in Spain, where they would have doubling or tripling of their amount of tests in a single day. That, that has never happened. It hasn't happened in Alabama. It hasn't even happened in New York, which is the ground zero for this pandemic. So that being the worst spot in America and them not even having exponential gains there, it means that the likelihood of us seeing an exponential spike in Alabama is practically non-existent, especially when you're looking at how the numbers are not keeping pace with predictions. But really, the ultimate conclusion you should take from that is right now, there really is no discernible trend. So let's go ahead and look at the, uh, look at the new test that we're doing. So these are new tests in the state of Alabama, and you'll notice that testing is actually down if you're looking at it overall. Even if you were to normalize some of the big spikes that came after lulls, in other words, where days where we had no testing, where you had three or four days worth of testing showing up in the statistics in one day, we're still somewhat below normal. Not significantly below, nothing that would merit panicking, but today was extremely low. We haven't had a day under 2,000 in about a week, almost a full week. So nothing that makes it a massive outlier because it's been six days since the last time we had under 2,000. But our tests have not been anything that have exponentially increased either. They, they've stayed pretty much within some level of normalcy if you average them out over several days. So there's really not a whole lot to report there. Let's also look at hospitalizations. Now, you'll look at the hospitalizations that have been connected to COVID-19. You'll notice that our hospitalizations are significantly down, and that is something that we really can celebrate. I mean, we're below... We're not only just below average, we're significantly below the average that we've seen over the past week. That is something that is really, really good. It looks really good for the future. Uh, just to give you an indication of how good the hospitalization numbers are, and, and this is, even though our cases have been a little bit alarming, uh, this is one area where we can really start patting ourselves on the back a little bit. The hospitalization rate this week was 12.5%. The week before that, it was 
and two weeks ago it was still at 13.4%. So we've brought it down almost an entire percentage point of the cases that we're getting. And so we've had a decrease in cases, but one thing that you could attribute that to, you could say, oh, well, that's just a lack of testing. And the truth is our testing numbers are not nearly good enough to discount that as a possibility that we actually are having a, a big spike in cases and it's actually even worse than it looks because you're also seeing a decline in tests. But here's the thing. If we're also at the same time having a decline of hospitalizations, it would stand to reason that that's not the case. Because you could just write it off and say, not only are we having a, a, a big increase in cases, but we're having that big increase coinciding with a lack of testing, which means our numbers are actually even worse than they seem, and we should go into panic mode. Well, no, first of all, there's not a good excuse to go into panic mode, even if that were true. But let's just assume that it was. Why are our hospitalizations significantly down? They're on a downward trend, despite the fact that we're having more coronavirus cases overall than we've been used to in the past few days. Well, it would stand to reason that if that is the case, that we're not getting significantly sicker than we have been in the past. It, it doesn't seem to be that's what the data is telling us or, or that the lack of testing is because uh, people are just out there and not getting tested. It seems to suggest that what's actually going on here is regardless of how many people we're having confirmed, for the virus that people are getting less sick and less in need of medical attention. Now, it would be important to note, and this is going to play into this analysis as well, let's look at the number of deaths connected to the coronavirus. So if you look at the COVID-19 deaths, and again, these are new deaths per day, this is also really good news because those are also down, which coincides with the analysis that we just looked at that maybe since the deaths and the hospitalizations are down, what's actually happened is people are not getting as sick from this thing as they had in the past. So uh, maybe that's true. I'm not really sure. And again, pay attention to the left side, the y-axis of your graph there, that even though you'll see some days with really big spikes, those really big spikes are like 34. So significant. Not something to be ignored, but it's not like we're having hundreds of Alabamians die a day from this thing. The highest we've ever had is 34, and we did tie that back on Friday, which again, I said Friday was a, a really bad day for us in the Yellowhammer State. But ever since then, they've been really down. Now remember, perhaps one thing that played a significant role in the decrease in deaths is the fact that it is a weekend, and weekends tend to be, again, I don't know why scientists haven't been able to give a, a good explanation for this, but for whatever reason, deaths tend to not happen as frequently from this virus on the weekend, and that is what the stats lead us to believe. But, you know, regardless of what the reason is, it's really good news that our death, which looked really, really bad because we had that 34-person spike back on Friday, it calmed down significantly over the weekend, so... That's definitely something to be positive about. So here's the interesting thing that I, I wanted to bring to your attention. Uh, the rate of confirmed cases is actually really low in Alabama. As I was digging through the statistics, I noticed 
that our rate of confirmed coronavirus cases versus tests, in other words, how many tests we're administering versus how many people are being confirmed with it, the rate of positives we have is only 7.7%. Now, to give you some context, the national average is right at 15. I mean, it's like 14.959. So it's, it's basically 15%. Well, that means that Alabama's is about half, a little more than half, but not much. It's about half of what the national average is. That's pretty significant. And so it would be easy to chalk up a whole bunch of that to a lack of testing, but if we had significantly less testing, wouldn't that mean our rate would be higher? Because presumably the people that would be tested would be the ones that are symptomatic and the ones that are sick, and if that were the case, then we would actually have very few tests and a lot of those tests coming back positive, but they're not. Most of our tests are coming back negative at a far more significant rate than the national average. Isn't that interesting? So what this actually means is, and there's a couple of different contributing factors, because you, you could just, again, try to make some, some way to make this just a, a testing issue where it, maybe there's not enough tests, and so people that actually need to be tested aren't being tested. Well, that would seem odd that our positive rate is so low because you would think that the people in most dire need, the ones that are most in need of testing, would get it quickest, the people that are actually experiencing symptoms. But even if you were to ignore that point, our death rate is 8 per 100,000, which puts us 28th in the nation, and our death rate is actually lower than every single neighboring state with the exception of Tennessee. So Florida, Georgia, Mississippi, we're doing better than all of them when it comes to the number of deaths we're having compared to the number of uh, population. So it seems that the coronavirus is just not especially bad in the state of Alabama. And there's a couple of different reasons that that could be the case. But the odd thing is, even though our death rate compared to our population is lower than the national average, lower than our neighboring states, and we're having significantly less confirmed cases versus other states around us and, and significantly below the national average, well, why do we have such a high fatality rate? Because we do have a high fatality rate. Our fatality rate in the state of Alabama is 4%. That's by, this really is by exponential numbers, that is by leaps and bounds higher than it ought to be. The national fatality rate is below that. There's, it, it defies logic and reason to think that we have such a high fatality rate, and that may be coming down considering that the new numbers that are pouring in from COVID-19 deaths are, are actually, you know, they're, uh, they're not as bad recently as they have been in the past. But I think that there's a number of different explanations for why we have such a ridiculously high fatality rate compared to the national average. Remember the study that they did in Iceland said that the death the fatality rate for this virus was about two. Now, as I've said, and as antibody testing has proven, it's probably not two. It's probably a whole lot of people that are either asymptomatic or they had symptoms but thought it was just a bad cold. And so they got over it never knowing that they had coronavirus. And so there's a number of different variables that can go into that equation. But suffice it to say that it doesn't make sense that Alabama would be so much higher than other places. 
And so let's dig into why that, that is. I think demographics plays a huge role in this. Because if you think about Alabama and our state of health, we have pretty high rates of obesity. We have pretty high rates of smokers compared to other states. We have a very high rate of diabetes. We have a pretty high rate of issues like health problems, or sorry, heart problems specifically. Obviously, those are health problems too, but heart problems. And so Alabama is not well-suited to deal with this virus on a number of, in a number of ways. And so even though people are not getting it as often, and our rate of positive tests are, sig- are pretty low, especially compared to other places, if you do get it because Alabama has a higher rate of those problems, you are more likely to die from it. And so that is something that is significant. But also, I, I think that it's a factor, but I don't think it's even the most important factor. Now, stay with me on this. Remember that I am going off of data, and these are educated guesses like the models that we've been looking at, but this is one guy's opinion based on his understanding of the data. So I'm not claiming that this is absolutely what is going on. I'm just saying, hear me out on this and, and you know, roll with it. I think what's going on here is that there's just not very many people in the state of Alabama getting the coronavirus. Because it would stand to reason that if we do have all these risk factors, that if a lot of people in Alabama were getting the virus, then you would have an awful lot of confirmed cases. Because those would tend to be people that were symptomatic. Even if it doesn't kill you, if you've got some of these risk factors, like diabetes, like being a smoker, like having Alabama having a high, uh, issue, high rate of issues with your heart, Alabama being an older state than the average state, all of those things you would think factor in and would sign the, and would suggest that if somebody does get the virus, they should get sick enough to know that they need to have this test done, and yet that's not happening. So what is it? I think what's actually going on here is that people are just not getting it at very high rates that it's not nearly as contagious in the state of Alabama as it is in other places in the world. And there's a couple of reasons for that. And here's where I'm going to this. This is going to be an odd one, but trust me, follow me on this one. Major League Baseball. Yes, Major League Baseball conducted a study on its employees as to how much coronavirus they were getting. And they found out, these were their findings, 70% of them or sorry, uh, 0.7% of their employees had antibodies. In other words, about 0.7, not even 1% of all of their players, and, and this, by the way, went past just players. It also went to staff and other you know, broadcasters and everything else. Only 0.7% of their employees had antibodies. That's incredible. Think about it. When this whole thing broke, where were the vast majority of Major League Baseball's people. They were in Florida and in Arizona because of spring training. That's where most of their people were. And what were they doing in Florida and Arizona? They were outside, the vast majority of them athletes, playing, running around, sweating, pitching, batting, all of that stuff. And yet, and and granted, 
Now, let, let's also keep in mind that this is not, and I'm bringing this up specifically because it's not, a, a pretty good representation of the American population. These are primarily men. They are racially diverse, although they're, you know, not quite the exact demographics of America. They are racially diverse. They're also men primarily between the ages of about 18 and 24, 25. There's some outliers in there for sure, but that's primarily what we're talking about. Men in their prime, they're physically fit. They tend to not have health problems because if they did have health problems, there's not a great chance that they would be able to play. And so most of the ones that are at playing level don't have a lot of health problems. And they're out in the sun, moving around. uh, And this thing has a very, very low rate of infection for people that are outside a lot in the sun, very healthy. But even if this thing did infect people like that, they would show that it was in their antibodies. Their bodies actually had started producing the antibodies to counter this thing, but such a low rate of people did that it is far more likely that what is going on is because of their activity, because of what was going on, that they just weren't getting the virus. And so here's some more findings from that study. Of that 0.7% that did have antibodies, 70% of the ones that did have them were completely asymptomatic. So they're out there in the sun, getting their vitamin D, building their immune system, all of these things, and 70% of them didn't even experience symptoms at all. And these are the ones that got it. Not the general population, just the ones that got it. And of that, 2.7% had a fever which also is incredibly fascinating because even if you're taking out the symptomatic versus asymptomatic discussion for a second, what one of the things that we're talking about, one thing that our university is talking about here at Faulkner, and, and I'm not saying it's a bad idea, I think it's a good thing, but I also question how effective it will be, is we've been told this whole time that the telltale sign is a fever. If you've got a fever, that's the first sign that you may have coronavirus. And that's the thing that they've been checking for at airports and things. Well, if only 2.7% of these people that had antibodies had a fever at any point, what does that suggest? It means all the other people that didn't, which is about 97%, didn't have a fever at all. And that means that having a fever would be a very, very bad indicator of whether or not someone has this thing and is a carrier of it. So I question how effective taking people's temperatures would be at keeping this thing from spreading if 90, in in this particular sample, and remember these are young, healthy men at at peak physical level, so it's it's not indicative of how the population is as a whole, but considering that such a large portion of them did not have a fever, I wonder how much taking someone's temperature would prevent the spread of this virus. 14% of them had a headache at one point, 8% had a cough, 0.9% had a loss of taste or smell. So very, very few of these people ever experienced symptoms. So what may be happening is the same thing here in the state of Alabama. A lot of people out, active, in the sun, moving around, and because of that, we have a much lower infection rate than other places. And places like Florida, like Arizona, having similar results. So, yes, it's more fatal in Alabama if you get it. But that also is because we're having extremely low infection rates. 
And so I think that that is a very uh, logical thing to look at because that's what Alabama, uh, Alabamians and these baseball players do have in common. So I think that that can be somewhat informative. Again, I don't think that it's absolutely conclusive, but it's somewhat informative on the approach that we should take and should help us really understand what are some of the things that we can do to help stop this virus. But another thing that it tells us, and this is my favorite part of this whole thing, tells us, let's play some baseball. Because if we're doing a survey of all of these baseball players and essentially being out in the sun, working out this kind of thing, is having a lot to do with whether or not people contract this disease, well then, by all means, let's play baseball. If the risk is this low, and remember that Dr. Fauci himself, when asked about sports, he said in the fall for college football, for NFL, what they could do is they could do a coronavirus test for each player before the game, and if you test positive, say, sorry, you, you can't dress out this game. That's what Dr. Fauci said. So why couldn't you do the same thing for baseball? If, we, if it turns out that, I mean, even if it's their star pitcher or their star batter, that the guy's got coronavirus, sorry, you can't play today. You got to go home, come back in a week or two. But if we're already looking at how few of these guys even contract the virus because of their activities, then why can't we just do this and open baseball back up here within the next few weeks? It seems to me that they're almost immune to it based on all of this. And at the very least, even if they do get it, they're pretty much all asymptomatic. So let's open up baseball again. And I'm not saying that you have to have, you know, stacked full crowds of people, but I don't see why you can't play a game and have it on the web or have it televised. That makes sense to me. And another thing too, you could even, presumably, because of how well this seems to turn out and, and how much of a difference being outside makes, why couldn't you have the stadiums at even just 25% capacity? Have a fourth of the number of people you normally have and have them all spaced out. Only sell seats to a family, for example. If, if you want to have six seats together, that's fine, but you're going to be at least two or three seat, empty seats away from everybody else. I'm not saying that I have all the details, but looking at these statistics, it seems to me highly ridiculous that we've canceled it. And maybe we don't do the things with the stands. Maybe we just open it up and have no fans for a little while and, and just play the game with webcast and, and TV for a little while. I'm okay with that. And if everything goes well and things don't, you know, tend to pop up like this, maybe then we do open it up. Maybe we do have it to where you can go with your family and social distance in the park and, and maybe not even have food services. I don't know. But being out in the sun does seem to make a difference. So if we're going to do this, maybe move to all day games. Don't have games at night. I mean, if you're not going to have crowds there anyway, why would you care when you're having them? Maybe the TV ratings and the webcast ratings will be a little bit lower, but it's certainly better than having nothing. You're certainly going to be bringing in more revenue that way. So, ultimately what it, it brings, brings me down to is, I think that this is one thing that we could do 
that would help people start returning to a sense of normalcy, even if they can't go to the stadiums and watch the games themselves, which, frankly, I really, really miss right now. I mean, I, I'd do anything to just about it to go to a Biscuits game or a Braves game at this point. I understand I can't do that, but uh, I typically like night games better. It's cooler. It's more enjoyable. I don't care. Go to a day game. And I probably won't do that just because I've got a few risk factors right now, and, and I really am in more danger than the average person. That's okay. I'll watch it from the comfort of my home. But, you know, I don't understand why, if these statistics are indicative of what is really going on, it makes no sense that we even closed baseball in the first place. It seems like they're doing just fine, even if they have to play to an empty stadium. So a couple more local stories right now. Uh, If you didn't already know, as of right now, when you're watching this, the safer at home orders in the state of Alabama have been lifted. Now, the state government is currently looking at rolling back the powers of the executive. Our Our legislative bodies are just sort of looking at the idea of we need to do something to curtail the governor's power in this because it's too absolute, which, which I applaud that move. And I'm not saying this just because I don't like what Governor Ivey did. I've never thought that it was a good idea to, in a time of emergency, give an executive basically unlimited power because if you know your history, that's how you had the first Caesar handed emergency power of the Senate over to one person and they didn't give it back. If you're a Star Wars fan, that's what happened with Palpatine, which, by the way, is based off of what happened in Rome. But anyway, it's the same kind of thing. They they tend to get power, and then they don't want to give that power back. And I don't think that Gay I, uh, I don't think that Kay Ivy is the uh, I don't think she's the type to go for ultimate power or anything like that. I think that she likes it more than she lets on that she does. But I don't really think that that Meemaw is the type to try to take over the state and never give that power back, but what happens if we have a governor that is like that? I don't want to be around when that happens, and so it makes sense to make adjustments now. This has been a good case study in the separation of government powers, and the way that Alabama's law is structured right now, the governor simply just has too much power when it comes to emergencies. I do think that there ought to be some restrictions and some ability for the state legislature to have more say in what goes on in the state when an, uh, when one of these announcements comes forward. But to her credit, Governor Ivey did roll back the Safer at Home orders. She loosened them up, as it were, and this new order is going to last until May the 22nd. She announced this on Friday, so a couple of weeks we're going to be under these new orders. So what are the changes in the new orders? First of all, There is no longer a ban on gatherings of more than 10, so churches that haven't been able to meet because of the 10-person limit, churches can now do that. Now, each of these gatherings are expected to continue to social distance. You still have to stay six feet apart from one another, which, again, I don't like the government saying that, but that's fine if that's what you want to do. I think that's something that you ought to do, quite frankly. But the fact that this is now left up to individuals and left up to the churches themselves, I think that that is actually uh, a step in the right direction. I I hesitate to call it good because I I don't, again, I don't like government involvement in it, period, but it is a step in the right direction. Restaurants are now open, but parties must be limited to eight people or less. So if you're a, a nice Catholic family, I'm sorry, 
you may have to be split your family up into two different groups if you want to go out for a dinner. I, you know, that's just the way that it is. Uh, you know, uh, sorry, that's that's just how things are right now. But, you know, again, a step in the right direction. Uh, they're in restaurants. There are no self-serve stations. So you can't go up and get your drink yourself. If you're, if you're in a fast food joint, you can't have that nice drink fountain where you can fill it up yourself. It looks like there are also no salad bars, no buffets. Boy, Golden Corral is screwed by this. <laughs> that's their whole, that's their entire restaurant. At least some of the Chinese buffets have a menu that you can order off of if you'd rather do that than a buffet. Golden Corral, man, they just don't know what to do. <laughs> I feel for them. But anyway, gyms are now limited to 50% capacity and must social distance. Again, I don't like the government being able to dictate that, but I think it's actually a good practice. I think that it's a good suggestion. I don't know that I would be going to a gym right now, personally. I've been working out at home, and I like that better anyway, and I don't really like gyms, but... If you are going to do it, I, I imagine that staying at less than 50% capacity would at least be helpful. Uh, that's something that, you know, you're sweating all over the place really, really hard to keep the spread of a virus or, or any kind of disease really there. And that's one of the reasons I don't like public gyms, even if they are pretty clean. Close contact services and businesses have reopened. So haircuts, tattoo parlors, all of that stuff, they are allowed to legally reopen now. Uh, which is really good. I mean, it made no sense for you to have all these other businesses open and available, especially big box stores, big businesses, when just because you happen to come in contact with your customers, in the case of uh, somebody that's a barber, that that was just not allowed. So that's a win for small businesses and for the state of Alabama. Still closed. All sporting events, nightclubs, bowling alleys, arcades, Concert venues, theaters, auditoriums. That's very broad. Anyway, performing arts centers, tourist attractions such as museums, racetracks, indoor children play areas. Okay, fair enough on that one. Still don't like the government saying it, but I, I understand. Uh, adult entertainment venues. I, I'm not even sure what that means. I thought that that was illegal in the state of Alabama, but whatever. And casinos and bingo halls. Isn't casino gambling illegal in the state of Alabama? I, never mind. So Governor Ivey, I think that what this shows about her and her political style is that she is the consummate popularist. Always has been. That's just who Governor Ivey is. And I think what's going on here, and the reason you saw that lag, is because Governor Ivey understands that walking this was going to be walking a razor's edge because she always wants to curry the approval of both the people and the media. And sometimes that's a really good thing. Sometimes it's really not. And sometimes she is extremely cautious on that, not because I think that she herself is necessarily an overly cautious person, although I would say she's more cautious than, than the average person if I had to, had to guess on that. I think that it really comes more, at least this decision did, from the fact that Governor Ivey just does not want to make waves. That's the only predictable quality that she has, is that if you want to know what Governor Ivey is going to do, 
the best way to predict that and to give yourself a, a fighting chance at guessing what she's going to do is, okay, how's the public perception of this going to be? Because you'll notice she is very swift to act on anything that she knows for a fact people are going to be behind her on. The abortion thing, perfect example. The reason that she went forward with that and did it so with no hesitation, and I do applaud her for that and gave her credit for it, but the reason is not because I think that it's necessarily something that is a, a core belief of hers, even though it may very well be. I think really what it has more to do with is she knew that the people of Alabama were going to back her on that. And because she did that, that was a very low-risk move for her. Anything that is high-risk, anything that she knows will open her up to scrutiny, she is very, very slow to act on that. She's one of those people that, that puts her finger up in the political wind, figures out which way it's going, and then goes that way. That's just who Governor Ivy is. In fact, she's very much like President Trump before his big falling out with the media. Because you may remember in the early days of the Trump campaign, Donald Trump was still saying things that the media found offensive and outrageous, but he still tried to curry their favor. And I think that's very much what Governor Ivy was trying to do with this. She knew that if she went ahead and rolled back the, the stay-at-home orders in a significant way, that what was going to happen is she was going to catch a ton of flack from the media. And Governor Ivey's only political philosophy is do not make waves. And she knew that would make waves. So what she did was, again, stuck her finger up in the air, tried to tell which way the political winds were blowing, and went the way that she believed that they were going. I don't think that she anticipated the level of blowback from Alabama citizens, but she did get quite a bit of praise from Alabama media. In fact, you can check this out. This is like the one time that Kyle Whitmire actually praised a Republican, and I find it hilarious that the only time that he seems to be able to praise a Republican is when they're acting dictatorially or taking away people's freedoms. But, I mean, you can see the tweet right there. Kyle Whitmire's article saying that Alabama's governor is better than your governor and you have that quote up there in that social media post. For once, columnist Kyle Whitmire writes, Alabama has something that Georgia doesn't. A leader who makes decisions driven by data, expertise, prudence, and safety. Now, here's the thing. I read that entire article and it's exactly what the headline would lead you to believe. Because sometimes you read these things and they're kind of clickbaity. That the the headline doesn't really reflect the content of the article. In this one, the headline is absolutely reflective of the article. The entire thing is just a, a seething disdain for Alabama and talking about how Georgia is so much better than Alabama and Alabama is a horrible place to live and I don't know why anybody would want to live there except this one specific time where Governor Ivey decided to flex her political muscle and try to keep people, demand that people give up their liberties in the name of safety. And Brian Kemp, the governor of Georgia, did the opposite of that. Well, now Governor Ivey is a hero. This one time, Governor Ivey is better than Georgia, and this is the one specific way that we're better than Georgia. I think we're better than Georgia in a lot of ways. I like Georgia. I don't think Georgia's a bad state. And I think in this particular issue, if I had to pick between Governor Ivey and Brian Kemp, frankly, in most issues, I would go with Brian Kemp. But sometimes, I mean, Georgia gets it wrong and, and we get it right. And I think that that happens on a, you know, a far more regular basis than the left in the state of Alabama would lead you to believe. And I am not really astounded because I've just kind of gotten used to it by this point. But 
I am conti- I continuously notice that AL.com just dumps on the state for no reason all the time. That that seems to be the common theme of AL.com's coverage of most things in the state, especially when they're comparing Alabama to other states. And this one was no exception. It's just the one time that Whitmire finds something nice to say about a Republican, it's when they're not acting like a Republican, which really should surprise nobody. Meanwhile, Governor Kemp in Georgia, who, remember, back on April the 28th, did roll back his state stay-at-home order and tried to open up the economy. This is what was going on over in Georgia. This is a tweet from Governor Kemp where he says, Today marks the lowest number of COVID-19 positive patients currently hospitalized statewide, 1,203, since hospitals began reporting this data on April the 8th. Today also marks the lowest total ventilators in use, 897, with 1,945 available. This guy has almost 2,000 ventilators sitting idle. They don't need them. There is a ridiculous overabundance of resources, which we were always told. We were always told that the reason we had to flatten the curve was not to get rid of coronavirus, not even to keep people from getting coronavirus because it was pretty much inevitable that we were all going to get it. The reason that we were all sheltering in place is to make sure that we had enough ventilators. Well, here's a guy that's saying we've only got about 800 in use and we've got 2,000 sitting there collecting dust. Why wouldn't that person open up the economy if that's the case? If you've got this massive excess of resources and you're 100% sure that at this point you are not going to overwhelm your healthcare system, I thought that was the point of the shutdown the whole time. Why wouldn't you open it up if that was the case? If I'm Governor Kemp, I do exactly the same thing. And another governor that has a similar situation in their state, it's ridiculous for them not to do that. If that's the numbers that they're looking at. And yet, the media just absolutely bashed him. CNN said, this is a headline from CNN. Georgia's daily coronavirus deaths will nearly double by August when they, with the relaxed social distancing model suggest. Which, by the way, I thought that that would probably be right. And it may very well prove to be right. We're not in August yet. We don't know. But they said that two weeks ago, and now Georgia's actually doing a lot better, especially on things like hospitalizations, which would lead us to believe that what I was saying beforehand is actually true. People getting out, being in the sun, continuing to social distance, continuing to be smart and to make smart decisions and not necessarily, you know, hanging out in a mosh pit like they would have beforehand, but making wise decisions and going out and and being out in the sun, especially when you consider that Georgia has a very similar climate to Alabama, that does make a significant difference. And of Georgia's new cases over the past two weeks, do you know where the vast majority of them are? Atlanta. Half of the new cases over the past week have been in Fulton County. Well, duh. That's what we've been saying from the beginning. That densely populated areas are the places where this thing is most commonly spread. That that's the big factor. And so, 
it makes no sense to treat Atlanta and Huntsville and Birmingham and Savannah and Nashville exactly the same as Slapout and Wetumpka and Pratt. That doesn't make any sense. And this is Governor Kemp just saying, Let, let's reevaluate some of this stuff. And the media slammed him for it. Heck, President Trump even slammed him for it. You may remember that President Trump was saying that it was reckless. It's a decision that I don't agree with. And yet, the healthcare system in Georgia isn't overwhelmed. We're two weeks out of this thing. Remember, the coronavirus has a two-week incubation period, and his state is fine. So, if anything, Kyle Whitmire's short-sighted praise of Governor Ivey is one of the cases where actually Georgia did do better than the state of Alabama. They are in better shape because more of their economy has opened up, and they're not significantly worse than us. In fact, they have more than enough uh, resources in their hospitals, and that is going down. Their need is going down. Their excess resources is fine. And so, of course, he opened up. That's what he should have done. And I, I got to say this about Governor Kemp. And I was never the world's biggest Governor Kemp fan. I don't know him. I don't know a whole lot about him. I kind of followed his election a little bit, but only because of the whole kerfuffle with Stacey Abrams and, and them claiming that she stole that he stole the election and all that other bullcrap. But I showed up very late to that game, obviously, because I really only started paying attention to it uh, a couple weeks before it happened. And so I don't know a whole lot about Kemp or his policies, but I got to tell you, if I'm a Georgian, man, uh, Governor Kemp deserves a round of applause for that. Because he took heat not only from the left and the media, which every Republican does, but he took it directly from President Trump in a, you know, in a political climate where going against the president is seen as political suicide for the Republican Party. He did what he thought the data led him to believe regardless, and it wound up paying off big for him. So, you know, props to him. That guy... I mean, that's the courage of a lion right there. So kudos to Governor Kemp on that. But I really think what this all goes down to, because they completely mischaracterized what Georgia was doing from the very start. They've mischaracterized what other Republicans have done from the very start. They've basically said that them rolling these things back, I wish that this were the case, but they've said that I wish them rolling them, that, that these people in the red states, these governors rolling back these regulations was going to cause everybody to just go back to life as normal and there's no restrictions left. Well, I think there actually should be no restrictions because I don't think that's the government's job. But regardless, first of all, that's not what happened. And second of all, what this shows is that people can be responsible. Just because you say that, yeah, you can have as many people as you want at church and, and you can all gather together, doesn't mean, first of all, nobody's even suggested that, but that does not mean that people are going to do it. I think that if they had never issued an, an order to close down churches, you'd still see a lot of cl churches closed down. There are several states, including Tennessee, including Texas, that never shut down churches. There was an exemption from them from the very start. They could show up and, and do whatever they wanted to within the walls of their own church. You know what happened? A lot of them shut down. Because on average, people are responsible. Leave it to the American people. They will make the, the, their own decisions. They will bear the consequences or the rewards of their decision-making. They'll be fine. It is not the government's responsibility to treat us like children who can't make our own decisions. That's wrong. 
And that's what's going on here. So I'm still not happy with Governor Ivey's newest order. I still don't think that it's a, a good plan, a good decision, but it's a lot closer to what it actually should be. It's a lot closer to not having these government involved in these decisions than they were beforehand. So I'm not going to give her a ton of brownie points, but at least it's a step in the right direction. All right, so one other big local story that I wanted to get to. Well, I'll tell you what, we'll go ahead. We've already been going for a while. We'll take a quick break and we'll be back in just a minute. This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. And welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics. Did have a couple more local stories that we need to get to today. So this was one that I'm I'm actually bringing it up because it got so much buzz on social media. But in a lot of ways, it's a non-story, and I'm going to explain that here in a second. So I don't even want to say that it's a non-story, but people are rushing to judgment despite the fact that there's very little information on it. That's a better way to explain it. It's not a non-story, but it's a story that definitely needs more development. So here's the setup. In a Birmingham Walmart, there was a police officer that slammed a woman to the ground. She was not wearing a mask. We don't know if that's actually part of it or not, but regardless, here's the clip that you can see taking place in a Birmingham Walmart. So you see there, pretty rough takedown. Like, you can tell that it was something that was, it's not easy to see. One thing that we need to know and we need to set the table on this is that anytime seeing a police officer interact with somebody that is either resisting arrest or makes the police officer feel unsafe uh, in the sense that they might attack, something like that, when they have to move to some kind of escalation or or violent action, it's always going to look bad. It's always going to not be pretty. Like, even if the cop was totally in the right, even if a guy pulled a gun on him, for example, and the cop has to shoot somebody, that's still not something that looks good. Even if the police officer did the right thing, that doesn't mean that the optics on it are good. So I want to go ahead and, and say that, that we have to understand that that's something that, that happens whether the cop is right or not, that it, it's it's a foregone conclusion that it's going to look not pretty, I guess would be the best way to say it. But there's several facts going on here. First of all, fact number one, we don't know whether the mas- maskless woman was being slammed down because she was maskless. We don't know if that's what started the altercation with the police officer. Some people kind of jumped to the conclusion on this. And in fact, the way that it's the headline was titled was maskless woman, which is technically true. But it seems like mentioning the fact that she's maskless is trying to escalate the idea that she got slammed to the ground because she was maskless, because we're in a weird place now that not wearing a mask is not the norm now. See, used to not wearing a mask was the default. By the way, I'd like to point out the irony of being in trouble because you don't have a mask on. See, normally it's the opposite. Normally having a mask on is the thing that would tend to make people suspicious of you. I've always thought it was really weird, like, how would banks deal with this now, with people coming into their establishments 
wearing masks. Like, I thought you couldn't wear a mask inside a bank. They, they were afraid that that meant that you were going to rob them. And so I'm guessing they have no idea what to, to do with this. And in fact, in the state of Alabama, it is indeed a crime to be out in public with a mask on. That's an actual crime in the state of Alabama, yet in Birmingham, where this took place, it's now a crime to not have a mask on out in public because of an edict passed down by their mayor in, an, in this emergency situation. Fact number two, this police officer was indeed a Birmingham police officer, but he was off-duty. This was not some action that he took as an official of the police department. He was working security at this Walmart. So, yes, he's a cop, but he's not on duty. He was not doing this as a part of his police duties, which I'm not sure if that actually makes it better or worse. Because the fact that it was an off-duty police officer, that this is just a security guard of the company, first of all, I'm sure Walmart is horrified by this because since he's an employee of theirs and this happened in their establishment, oh my gosh, that, ha that opens up all kinds of liability issues for them. I would frankly be surprised if this guy continues to work security for Walmart. But the, the second part of that is, that also means that if anything, he should have a higher standard but it also means that this was not something like it wasn't a resisting arrest kind of situation, something like that, because he wasn't acting in his official capacity as a police officer. I, I get it. You never take off the badge and he's a police officer, whether or not he's working security or not. But still, I mean, that that does change the perception of the way the story is understood a little bit. And fact number three, as of today, the department has announced that there were no arrests or citations made in connection to the stay-at-home protocols. So despite the fact that there is a law on the books, according to the mayor of the city of Birmingham now, they haven't arrested anybody for not wearing masks. And since this happened directly after this incident took place and in response to it, it also means that this woman was not arrested. So again, this seems to be something that's more of an internal issue within Walmart than it is an issue for the Birmingham police. But regardless of all that, it still looks ridiculously heavy-handed. It looks like it's over the top and it's unnecessary. I mean, this is a big dude taking down a, a pretty tiny woman. And what appears as though he's slamming her face first on the ground, that's, I don't see the necessity of that. Granted, it's not like it's on asphalt, but I mean, you could still really hurt somebody doing that. And it certainly does not look good, but I I think that the mask law is really stupid. But I don't think that it justifies this action, whether this guy was a security guard or a off-duty cop. Of course, he was both. Either way, it's not a good look, but I, I don't think that we can chalk this up to something that's going on in, in relation to the coronavirus. It seems as though there was an altercation started by something completely different. We don't know exactly all the details. We'll have to wait until we really pass judgment on that. But I will say this. Even though this didn't happen in connection with the coronavirus, or at least that's not what seems to be going on here, this was not something that happened because this woman wasn't wearing a mask, it does make us ask some very serious questions about some of the things that our police officers are going to have to deal with soon. They're going to have to make some very difficult decisions in the very near future, and I'm worried about them because of it. So that's just something that I really want you to think about. Another really cool story, and I love bringing this one to you because it's just such a cool story 
to get to talk about. Is it possible that Tesla, the cars, are going to be manufactured in the state of Alabama? Well, it's a long shot, but recent events suggest that maybe. Check out this tweet from Elon Musk, who is, of course, the originator of and the CEO of Tesla. Now, you can see this tweet from him, and this is a series of tweets. Tesla is filing a lawsuit against Almeda County immediately. That's where Tesla is located. The unelected and ignorant interim health officer of Almeda is acting contrary to the governor, the president, and our constitutional freedoms, and just plain common sense. And then he follows it up with this. Frankly, this is the last straw, or the final straw. Tesla will now move its HQ and future programs to Texas slash Nevada immediately. If we even retain fire mount manufacturing activity at all, it will be, it will be dependent on how Tesla is treated in the future. Tesla is the last car maker left in California. Now, of course, the states that he mentions by name there are Texas and Nevada, which shouldn't be surprising. The guy lives in California, and there's a lot of people moving from the state of California to the state of Texas. That's actually, uh, if I'm not mistaken, and granted, they have the biggest population, so I'm going by raw numbers here. But California has lost the biggest portion, the, the biggest percentage of its population to Texas. Out of all the states that they've looked at with state-by-state uh, state moving, California has lost a lot of business to Texas over the past 10 years. And Nevada, it's not exactly a red state, even though it leans more red than blue. It's, it's sort of a, uh, it's, it's definitely not a Republican stronghold, though. It's, it's more of a swing state. So looking at that, it would not be surprising that somebody that lives in California is looking at his other options, and the first two places he thinks of is, hey, you know, Nevada and Texas. Maybe we should move there. But once he starts doing a little research, once he starts looking at what would actually be the best place in the country to move his Tesla manufacturing, he might find that Alabama fits the bill better than Texas or Nevada. And by the way, this was noticed by our lieutenant governor, Will Ainsworth, who said, and this is a quote directly from his post, we would love to have Tesla in Alabama. We have a tremendous workforce, a lot lower taxes than California, and our businesses are working safely. Well, I mean, he's not wrong. There's a reason that Honda, BMW, Hyundai, and Toyota have all chosen Alabama as their home base for manufacturing. And we've got the workforce, we've got the supply chain, uh, I mean, there's we've got the business-friendly policies and low taxes. There's a good reason that all of those places have chosen us. Frankly, I think that Alabama eliminates our state income tax or state sales tax, one or the other. I don't frankly care as much which, as long as we get rid of one of them, even if we have to beef up the other one just a little bit to compensate. Any of those things would make a fantastic environment for Tesla. You know, does Tesla actually move here? It's a long shot, and if it does, it'll probably take a few years. But how cool would that be for Alabama to be the home of Tesla? I really hope that takes place. It's a really cool company, really interesting. Uh, the fact that they have some of the fastest cars. Uh, what was that a couple of years ago? They set out to make a, a car and actually wound up finishing a, a car that goes from 0 to 60 in 3 seconds. I mean, that's insane. But... 
really, really cool. And it's because it's straight acceleration, but uh, that would just be a really interesting product to move to the state of Alabama. I really hope that takes place. So with that being said, let's go ahead and move on to the daily dose of stupid. That was stupid. I know it was stupid. Really stupid. Hey, I just said it was stupid. Now, today's daily dose of stupid, you probably all heard about the salon owner there in Dallas and the fact that the judge actually asked her to issue some kind of apology. So here's what actually happened. Shelly Luther, who was the owner of a salon there in Dallas, Texas, opened up despite the fact that Governor Abbott had not cleared close quarters of, what's the name of it, close contact businesses like barbers and salons to open up yet. Now, luckily, she's actually out of jail now because she had been jailed for opening up, which was a ridiculous overreach, and even the Texas Supreme Court agreed. They said that this judge should not have issued a penalty of internment or imprisonment for this particular offense, and then Governor Abbott actually came out and retroactively said, look, we're not going to have arrest as a possible penalty for violating these orders. And so I think Texas quickly realized, yeah, we, we don't want this. We don't want this in our state. But keep in mind, what I find hilarious about this is this is Dallas. This is the same city where the district attorney said, yeah, we're, we're just not going to prosecute any crimes under like what was the amount that he gave? $2,000, something like that. He's like, yes, if you just shoplift something, we're just not going to prosecute you. So I could walk out of a store with a thousand bucks worth of merchandise and the DA's just not even going to prosecute me. But this woman opens up her business to feed her family and she gets thrown in jail. That's not an America I want to live in. And I think the good people of Texas realized that and, and quickly backtracked on that once they realized that they had given these judges way too much power when it came to issues like this. So the, the governor actually did retroactively rescind that. But this is why you don't make symbolic laws. This is why you actually think through a law or a regulation and ask yourself, what's the ultimate place you wind up in if you follow this? Because I think what was actually happening is that the governor put that penalty on there to say, to scare people. So that people would sort of be scared into submission and adhere to the rules that he put forward under fear of being put in prison, but he didn't think anyone was actually going to get thrown in jail for it. And so that was a largely symbolic thing. Look, it's the law. Don't make it symbolic. If you want that to be the penalty, make that the penalty. If you don't think it's right for that to be a possible penalty, then don't include it. Don't do it symbolically. Don't just assume that every judge is going to have the common sense not to throw somebody in jail for opening up their business trying to feed their kids. Don't do that. You should make the law actually reflect what you want it to do because Governor Abbott, I mean, is, is clearly saying, whoa, I didn't mean that now. <laughs> I mean, he, he's the one that rescinded the implementation of his own rule. And I like Governor Abbott. I really do. I think he's a fantastic governor. But he royally screwed up on this one. And I think that the fact that he rolled back on it so quickly is a pretty good indication of that. So 
the judge actually said that I will not send you to jail if you do this thing. And, and this is, I just want to give it to you in his own words. This is what he said the conditions were of him not sending her to jail for opening up her hair salon. That you now see the error of your ways and understand that the society cannot function where one's own belief in a concept of liberty permits you to flaunt your disdain for the rulings of duly elected officials. That you owe an apology to the elected officials whom you disrespect, disrespected by flagrantly ignoring and in one case defiling their orders, which you now know obviously apply to you. That you understand that the proper way in which an or in an ordered society to engage concerns which you may have had is to hire a lawyer and advocate for change, an exception or an amendment to laws that you find offensive. That you publicly state that this is the way that citizens in the state should behave. And that you represent to this court that you will today cease operation of your salon and not reopen until after further orders of this of the government permit you to do so. This court will consider the payment of a fine in lieu of the incarceration, which you've demonstrated that you have so clearly earned. I gotta tell you, I have not been this disgusted at a clip in a really, really long time. I mean, just the, the, the pride and the hubris drips off of this guy. It's palatable how disgusting this is. And, uh, oh, our good friend, another News Radio 1440 host, Kevin Elkins, actually just commented on this. I think he got God and Judge mixed up. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's a pretty good synopsis of this whole thing. So here's the little picture. And it's not a little deal, but this is the little picture. Let's look specifically at this case and look at what he did in a vacuum. I think what happened is because he defied, she defied his order specifically, he got butthurt about it. And because he got butthurt, he allowed his personal feelings to influence his judgment, deeming that this woman was a danger to society and needed to be locked up away from civilization so that she could reflect on her crimes. Because he said that the thing that he would take in exchange for not sending her to jail, the thing that he would take is essentially a, an indicator that that is not an appropriate punishment for her, was to apologize to him. I mean, this is a judge that let his personal feelings get in the way of his judgment, and that is not something that you want in a judge, for sure. But let's look at the bigger picture. Let's look at the content of what he actually said. I'm going to go through it point by point and explain each of the problems with this because the whole way through, I just wanted to, I threw up in my mouth a couple of times just watching this. I, I was seething mad at this. This is much more like a totalitarian state, something that would happen there rather than America. And here's why. First of all, he says that the, he made a big deal about defying an order from a duly elected official. Well, here's the thing. Duly elected or not, no official, whether it's a senator or a judge or a county clerk or the Kaiser, none of them have the right to take away a God-given right. 
And when you're talking about a business, which is your property, and the right to assemble, those are God-given rights guaranteed to us by the Constitution. Whether or not it was a good idea, whether or not this was the safest thing to do, doesn't matter. Those are rights given to you by your Constitution. No elected official has the right to take those away from you unless you have actually broken the law. They were making the act of assembling and the act of uh, actually interacting with your own property and using your own property the crime itself. That is a ridiculous abuse of a God-given right, which no government, regardless of who they are, has the right to take from you. I don't care whether they were duly elected or not. Be they elected officials or a dictator, doesn't matter. They don't have the power to do that. Another thing, why is this disrespecting an, an elected official? Why is that so repugnant to him? This is America. We have free speech. We disrespect elected officials all the time. I've probably disrespected at least five or six since the show started. That's okay. There is no law that says you must respect elected officials. Follow the law, sure. But the idea that you have to respect an elected official? No. That's an entirely un-American attitude to have. We're supposed to disrespect our elected officials. <laughs> We've always done that. It's literally how this country was started. By not respecting elected officials. And so the fact that he finds that so distasteful is, is pretty indicative of the kind of person that he is. And I think the worst part of this whole thing is where he said that you defiled their orders. I'm sorry, when did these stay-at-home orders become scripture? Because by saying defiling, he is invoking religious, holy kind of uh, emphasis. For example, it is wrong, in my opinion, to drive recklessly. It's a very bad thing to do. It is wrong, for example, to drive drunk. It's a horrible thing to do. But is driving drunk defiling the law? Well, no, not really, because the law is not a sacred thing. It's not scripture. It's not gospel. Now, you could make the argument that doing something like that, doing something reckless, is defiling God's law, is defiling the principle of love your neighbor as yourself. You can make that statement, but you can't say that just because something is the law of the land that you're defiling that law by not doing so. Dude, this isn't the Bible. You're not going to hell for this. And especially with something as minor as this, just opening up your shop and allowing people to come in and get a haircut, that's defiling the law? You're treating this person as though the law is your God and she is a heretic that has disrespected your law. That's what ticks me off about this. Because he's acting as though he is some kind of religious superior disciplining a child that defiled a religious statute. That's how it comes off. And that's what burns me up about it. And furthermore, what he's suggesting that she do, instead of doing this, and instead taking a, a lawyer and going through the process, he knows that that's a non-starter. He knows that by the time this woman lawyered up and actually filed a, a suit with the court, it would be several months at the absolute fastest that she would be able to open up her shop. Well, that defeats the entire purpose. The whole purpose of this was to make income where she wasn't making income. 
She can't spend money that she doesn't have on an attorney to get this thing overturned months into the future. That doesn't do her any good. The only thing that does good for her now is to open her shop back up. And so he knows that that's a ridiculous argument. But at the end of that, he basically suggests that he wants her to be a cheerleader for his cause. He wants her to not only agree with him, but to go and proclaim it, and in his own words, recommend to other citizens that this is the thing that they ought to do. Excuse me? Not only are you saying that she has to comply with the law from here on out, but she has to go out and advocate for something she doesn't believe in? I mean, that's the very definition of compelled speech. We just had a Supreme Court case specifically on this saying that compelled speech is even worse than compelled silence. Compelling a person under penalty of law to, suggest, to say that they have to say something that they don't believe in? That is the antithesis of free speech. I'm absolutely dumbfounded that this could happen in an American courtroom. And he ends that off with saying that the government must commit, or sorry, the government must permit you to open back up, and that's when you'll be allowed to do it. Again, it assumes as though your property rights are permissions granted to you by government, not a God-given right. That we will grant you permission to go ahead and open your business up. No, it's my property. You don't have that right. I have that right. You're not allowed to step on that. That's what the Constitution says. And furthermore, at the end where he says that you've clearly earned this kind of imprisonment, basically suggesting that what she has done is so obviously distasteful to him that she is clearly somebody that belongs in prison, I think it's hilarious that he says that and then the Supreme Court of his own state says, uh, no, this is ridiculous overreach. And Governor Abbott, the one that actually made these orders, is saying, yeah, that's, that's not an appropriate punishment for what happened there. I think that the best way to summarize this is to go to somebody that can articulate this even better than I can. To set up this quote that I'm going to share with you, if you've ever read 1984, the main character is essentially caught in an act of insurrection against the government. He's found out to be a rebel that does not like the status of things and is not a true believer in the party that is controlling the world there in 1984. He is a rebel of sense, and, and he hasn't done anything necessarily all that rebellious. He didn't start like a rebellion and try to overthrow the government, anything like that. He just doesn't believe that the government is right. And the government in this story says that, no, no, we're going to turn this guy into the most fervent believer that we can. And it, this is explained by one of the villains in this story in 1984 uh, by George Orwell. This is one of the uh, this is the primary antagonist speaking as they're torturing the main character to make him into a true believer. So this is the quote that you can see. We do not destroy the heretic because he resists us. So long as he resists us, we never destroy him. We convert him. We capture his inner mind. We reshape him. We burn all evil and all illusion out of him. We bring him over to our side, not in appearance, but genuinely, heart and soul. We make him one of ourselves before we kill him. We make the brain perfect before we blow it out. I mean, if that's not the epitome of evil, I don't know what is. 
And doesn't that sound an awful lot like what the judge was discussing here? That, no, no, we're going to take this woman that disagrees with us, and we're going to turn her into the most fervent cheerleader, saying that in order for her to escape jail time, she must go out and advocate for other citizens to do exactly what she originally didn't do. I mean, was this guy reading 1984 and suggesting, yeah, I want to be like that guy, the villain of the book, because that's what it sounds like to me. I don't even recognize this country. If that's something that is allowed in our justice system, I am so glad that the state of Texas saw fit to to go back on that. I, I Frankly, I'm afraid that if it had happened in a blue state, they would not have done this. The bottom line here is, this is America. Our government and our officials that serve in that government are our servants, not our masters, not our superiors, not our priests. We, the government, uh, we are the people that run the government, not the other way around. The government follows our lead. We don't follow it. This judge has it completely backwards. Let's go ahead and go to the chaplain's report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for the Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics. All right, our chaplain's report today does come from the book of Samuel. We're continuing our series in Samuel. So I'll go ahead and dive right into the scripture. This passage comes from 1 Samuel 10, 9 through 12. And the only thing that you really need to know to understand what's going on here is that this is directly after the previous section of scripture that we went through where Samuel has chosen Saul to be God's anointed king. And this is after that announcement has been made. He's already been anointed king. And this is, he's not like in the palace ruling yet, but this is sort of on his journey to being king. So let's go ahead and and look in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 9 through 12. Then it happened when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God changed his heart. And all those signs came about on that day. When they came to the hill there, Behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God came upon him mightily, so that he prophesied among them. It came about when all who knew him previously saw that he prophesied now with the prophets, that the people said to one another, What has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? A man there said, Now who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? There's a couple of really fascinating aspects to this scripture. One is, I think that it makes very obvious, it speaks to the changes that the Holy Spirit makes on somebody. When God's Spirit comes to uh, comes upon a person, that change is obvious to anybody that knew them. And that's the way that it should be now. It was the way that it was in the Old Testament. It's the way that it should be in the New Testament. That once somebody has made such a big change, once God is with a person that that makes a very noticeable difference in themselves, their personality, their priorities, all of those things. That if we are truly servants of God, if we are children of Him, if, if we serve Him the way that we're supposed to and God's Spirit is with us, then that is going to be something that other people, whether they were close to us or not, are going to notice and pick up on about us. So that's one very obvious thing. 
But one thing that I wanted to kind of zero in on here, what exactly does it mean by God changing his heart? Because I find that really interesting. That God changed his heart. Well, I don't think that it would be a correct interpretation of Scripture because of what we see elsewhere in the Bible. To say that God intervened in some kind of very specific way to change the kind of person that Saul was. I think it's true that he magnified some of the things that were already there. But you have to keep in mind that for God to change a person's heart, which, by the way, he continues to do to this day, that for God to really change somebody's heart, he has to be invited in. That it's not as though a person is just roaming around and all of a sudden God decides, you're going to be one of my people now, zap, and then he changes everything about them. That's not what's going on here. And that's not what the scripture is trying to convey. Because God does work in a person's heart. He does make those changes. It's him doing all the heavy lifting. But it's also a heart that has to be ready to receive that. I mean, you can see that all throughout the New Testament as well, the parable of the sower, so on and so forth. But if God were to override free will, if what he was talking about here is that basically, Saul, you are now just an extension of me. You're no longer your own person. I'm just going to make you do these things. I'm going to change your heart in this way. Well, that wouldn't make sense because we know what happens in the rest of the story. We know that eventually what happens is that Saul becomes an enemy of God. He goes hunting after David. He does all kinds of evil things. If God changed a person's heart and that meant they were permanently ripped of their free will and now only served him, well, that wouldn't make sense with the rest of Saul's story. So we know that that can't be the case. Remember that when God's Spirit did depart from Saul, the reason that it did is because Saul started disobeying God, which would suggest that the human interaction between God and man is dependent upon the human. That yes, God's Spirit did come to dwell with Saul to the point that he could even prophesy among other people. But what also happens here is that we know that when that departure of the Spirit takes place, it's because Saul essentially kicked God out of his heart. He didn't want him there anymore. And the way that we know he didn't want him there anymore is because he did evil. God told him to do one thing, he did something completely different. Saul defied God multiple times, and God's Spirit departed from him. So if we want God to be a part of our lives, if we want his Spirit to dwell within us, that has to be something that, A, he's invited to do, and B, it has to be continual. It has to be something that we're continually being obedient to God, doing what he wants, because God's not going to stay anywhere that he's not wanted. Jesus was that way. We see that Jesus in his physical life here on earth, whenever there was a place where they, they didn't want Jesus there anymore, Jesus left. I mean, he said things that were uncomfortable. He had no problem with people uh, pushing back on him. But when they were like, you know what, we're done. We don't even want to hear you anymore. What did Jesus do? He left. That happened over and over again in the Gospels. But another lesson I think it teaches us is it illustrates how much a person can change and fall out of God's favor. That's something that's very prevalent in the New Testament. Uh, it talks about falling from grace, for example, in Galatians 5.4, indicating that somebody has received God's grace and, and been the beneficiary of that can also fall away from it. And I think Saul is an Old Testament example of that. You look at Saul's life, Saul was every bit as much God's chosen, God's anointed as David was. What was the difference? 
David stayed faithful, Saul did it. That was the difference. That when Saul screwed up, he didn't repent. And when he did repent, it was insincere. You'll remember that he repented when David spared his life and he said, I will not chase after you again. And then what, two chapters later, we see him chasing after David again, trying to kill him? It wasn't a real repentance. When David repented, he meant it. Now, that didn't make him perfect. That didn't mean that everything he did afterward was approved by God, but dang it, you got to give him an A for effort. He tried really hard, and, and when he repented, it was obvious he was serious about it. Saul didn't have that. And I think it really does show the difference in the two of them that once Saul's heart turned against God, God was like, no, I'm, I'm not dwelling here anymore. I will go find somebody else, a man after my own heart. And so having the hindsight really does put this passage of Scripture into its proper perspective that, yeah, it was a wonderful thing for Saul, that he got to be an instrument of God's will for a while. God gave him all kinds of blessings, all kinds of special insight, prophecy, all of that. And that was a wonderful thing that ought to be applauded. But ultimately, Saul didn't follow through. Saul became prideful and arrogant and turned against God and no longer cared what God thought and went off and did his own thing. And when that happened, God's spirit departed. So if we want to be the beneficiaries of God's blessings, we have to be a David and not a Saul. Because it's great to start out great. It's great to have those blessings. It's great to be the recipient of God's grace. But we have to be somebody that invites God into our heart, that wants him there, that does the best that we can to maintain that. Yeah, God's doing all the heavy lifting, just like he did with Saul. No amount of Saul's goodness would have enabled him to give a prophecy. That was obviously God's work. But for God's work to be done through Saul, Saul had to have the right kind of heart for him to dwell in. He didn't take him over. He didn't make him into a robot. Ultimately, what happened is Saul had to be the right kind of person to be an instrument of God's will and to be used by God. And David did that until his death. So for us to do the same thing, for us to be truly in a right relationship with God, for God to dwell with us, we have to do the same thing David did and remain faithful. Otherwise, we can do what Galatians 5.4 talks about and, and fall from grace. Let's make sure that everything that we do is trying to follow the pattern that David set, not Saul. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt, only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.